This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hello, this is Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. So every episode, before I start the interview, I explain to the comedian what's about to happen. Not sure why I do this. You know, it's ultimately they just have to answer questions I ask them. But I hope I am communicating to them that I have a plan and they are in safe hands. What I usually say is, so we'll start with the joke and then go like this. Uh, So you just didn't see, but I did a hand motion of two hands expanding out in a sort of toppled over V shape. I essentially create the less than sign or the mouth of a hungry alligator. I think you can picture at this point, or at least I hope you've seen an alligator and their V-like mouths. But recently I started thinking of it as a sort of sideways iceberg. So often jokes, even big expansive stories are like, well, icebergs. They, They offer just a glimpse of what's underneath. Jokes are a distillation of a world of thinking and experiences. And in turn, this podcast is about revealing what's below the surface. I loved my interview with this episode's guest, Ron Funches, because it so purely exhibits this phenomenon. The Mashable joke we talked about, which appeared on his 2015 debut album, The Funches of Us, and his Comedy Central half hour, is short. It's not very long, and there aren't that many words in it, as he spends as much time not talking as talking during it. But there is a world behind it. And I can show you the world, Aladdin. So... Here is Ron Funches. I did actually see something really horrible recently. Uh, I saw a gentleman on a bus with a tattoo on his neck that just read, Fuck Linda. That guy hates Linda. (laughs) Or he has to remind himself To be intimate with Linda. Either way, Linda could do better. Oh, y'all know Linda? We shouldn't talk behind her back like this. All right, I am here with the man behind that joke, Mr. Ron Fungus. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. Let's start with this. Uh, is the joke true in, in that in, in what you say happened, did it happen? Yes, it's true. Um, it's from probably a year or two into when I started comedy. And oh, I wow. I was just riding the bus around Salem, Oregon. And I got on a bus and it was pretty crowded. And so there was nowhere to sit. And I just stand and I saw this guy and he was 
like cuddled up with a lady and I saw the tattoo on his neck. It just said, fuck Linda. So I assumed at one point it just said Linda. Uh, And I just thought it was really funny. And and, and also the fact that he at the same time was hugged up on a lady. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what if that's Linda? (laughs) Walk me through sort of when that then joke is written so much you see it. You're Mm -hmm. a comedian at this point, so you see funny things. Are you then like on the bus being like, oh, this is going to be a joke? Or do you kind of write it down? Do you write in your phone? Um, At first, I just... Uh, generally when I write a joke it just has to be a, a topic that like affects me so if I if the fact that I was like huh oh, that's strange to me was like oh this is a subject that I should write about and to me at first it was just like oh that's weird and what if that's Linda and <laughs> how could this be and so that's kind of just where it just kind of came in my mind was like oh like if that's Linda why would she be with him and I was like oh maybe he just it has amnesia or <laughs> maybe <laughs> like, oh yeah it's like the, a memento <laughs> yeah he can't every day he wakes up and he, he doesn't but he doesn't want to forget her so, <laughs> so he had it tatted on, on his neck where he knows he would look yeah uh and so it just took a i mean it came together pretty quickly and i just like it and for me i always kind of like to play where people might think punchlines are and guy a tattoo on his neck says fuck linda funny thing to see and yeah. then you're like that guy hates linda and you're like oh yeah he does <laughs> and you're like well that's is that a joke <laughs> it was like <laughs> and then it's still coming yeah and so it's like that's just like my style in general yeah. so it's interesting. I mean, the the only thing that I thought might not be true is the name Linda felt so unlikely for a name to be on a neck. I know. <laughs> it's 100% true. So, you know, wording-wise, it, you know, it's it's pretty compact mm-hmm. joke. It's a pretty short joke. Were there other parts at any time? No. I mean, <laughs> that's really it. I actually, I think that's one of the things I try to do more now that I didn't... Uh, when I saw from other comedians is like, I always kind of like would kind of hop in a subject and then move along. And yeah. now I'm trying to get more mileage out of a thing. And t- typically and similar to wrestling, which I love a lot of, or it's like, Oh, why do 50 moves if I can get more impact out of five to 10 moves? Yeah. So I'm trying to slow down more now, yeah. uh, which sometimes makes it too slow and not as good. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but this one was just kind of really kind of compact in itself. And it, it just was like for me when they were like, do you want to do a thing about your jokes? So I was like, yeah, this is kind of like I have other jokes that are more important to me and mm-hmm. more about uh, my family and my son and things like that. But as far as like a joke that I think kind of shows my joke writing style yeah. and me as a person like this is it. it's about me playing with perspectives, me taking the most positive spin on what could be considered a negative situation yeah. and that's my comedy in general well we're still talking about the wording let me uh ask mm-hmm. you about cursing in your act okay. because obviously i mean it said fuck linda you mm-hmm. can't be like you can't it has to say fuck linda yeah but i think it's notable because if you said fuck all the time then almost the impact of saying fuck wouldn't matter absolutely but if you you have you don't not say it mm-hmm but you, were you kind of deliberate in that? Are you aware of sort of how you use cursing? Yeah, I've always been very deliberate in that. Um, my favorite comedians have always been what I consider wordsmiths, not necessarily people who just are like wild and crazy and just yelling out things like everything they say is kind of picked out and similar again i always bring everything to wrestling but um my favorite wrestlers were the same every move they made was um precise and with with meaning and so i kind of wanted to take that type of 
tone into my comedy and I always use words as a tool and I like to every word is a tool but you don't need a jackhammer for <laughs> every job and so a similar thing as you as you said if I were to say fuck throughout that whole set yeah but when it's time for me to use it there's no impact <laughs> yeah so I try to which is always funny because sometimes people are like, you're a clean comic. I'm like, do you really listen to my <laughs> act? Because I'm not clean at all. Yeah, yeah. But my subjects are sometimes sweet and nice. And and sometimes I will then use the curse words to kind of pepper them. Um, and I got it a lot from this song uh, the Fugees made and Lauren Hill, where she talked about how that she could write, and I don't remember the exact line, but it was talking about how she could write the best and she was the best writer and, and she could write these great flowing poetry, but she has to add and bitch and shit mm. so that people will listen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? That's so funny. That reminds me when I used to take notes in college, I would put curses in it just so I would remember, like I have to pay attention to yeah, it. Yeah, it works. Yeah. So if you don't overuse it, it's, it's a great tool. And plus, I'm always a thing like, why would you be afraid of any word? Yeah. yeah. Any word is usable, but some aren't for me to yeah. use, <laughs> you know, but if you feel comfortable using them, use them. You said writing. I mean, at, at this point, are you literally writing down Yes. Pen to paper or typing yes. it out? At this point, yeah, I was writing down probably full scripts. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it moved quickly to like, you know, now it's like just keywords, setups and punches. And yeah. we will map it out and figure it out. And you're listening. Way. Are you listening to it back? At my best, <laughs> I am. When I'm in my zone, I am. When I'm touring, when we're on the travel, I'm to travel for yeah. that day. If we're on a plane, I will listen to the set back then. But I, like, I hate it. But sometimes- I don't understand how comedians. It is the of the many things that seems particularly hard about being a comedian that you'd have to listen to your voice. It's the worst. <laughs> it's the worst it feels bad Every, everybody is always like you see i love your voice and then i hear my voice back i'm like oh i sound like a whiny child and so it's difficult but it's the best it's like looking at yourself like an athlete and like no athlete worth its salt wouldn't go back and look at their game tape to yeah. go see what they did wrong and what they could improve on and it's the same exact thing so i just try i try to do it you know as you're talking about listening back and that you're, you're understanding your voice. And, and I was, I want to talk to you about how deliberate you are about also the sound of how you're saying the words. And so much as like, mm-hmm. you know, when I first heard which joke you're going to pick, I got an email that said Linda and I was like, oh yeah, fuck Linda. But I didn't remember the joke. I just knew that was part of it. And then mm-hmm. I listened back. It's like, oh yes, of course. But there's like a melody to how you say fuck Linda. Mm-hmm. And there's a melody to how, everything and i think it's partly you have a voice that can be sing-songy or whatever yeah. are you deliberate about that stuff or are you deliberate about the tone not so much deliberate about it as aware of it yeah um i'm aware that my vocal patterns are a little bit off kilter and that sometimes it can be sing-songy and, and it's just a mix of me uh, a mix of a lot of things i moved around a lot you know from the midwest and also the west coast and so there's a little bit and um there's a little bit of southernness in it <laughs> and then it's also just like i had a speech impediment as a kid so it's just like a lot of the things that people made fun of me when i was a kid are turning out to be very beneficial for <laughs> me now as, as far as being cartoon characters and things like yes. that um but in my stand-up i was just like oh this is my kind of my natural rhythm. Um, I do try to make sure I hit certain words, certain ways to, yeah. to get the most impact. But then mostly it's me being conscious to sometimes break that rhythm, especially if I'm doing a longer set. Because 
at my best, people are falling into my rhythm, they're in it, and they're laughing it. But if that goes longer than 10, 15 minutes in the same rhythm, you start to get sleepy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like a brainwasher. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, it is, I, you know, the, that does feed into sort of the, the tempo of, I mean, this is how you, I'm talking to you now, this mm-hmm. is the tempo that you speak. But I think it's possible that also sort of this joke is built upon, it's the, I have to imagine, it's the slowest delivered joke you have because like, a lot of the joke is sort of the pauses of the joke. Did that just come out from performing it, or did you kind of know that? Yeah, it came out from the more you perform it, the more you learn how to milk pauses, and 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 I've taken a lot of uh, acting classes recently, so it helped me in that regard in my performing of of acting things out and just taking more time and getting laughter off of uh, off of you know different facial features and not yeah. just being so word reliant. Um, were you aware even when writing it about the to have it be a such a pause heavy joke right there's the tw- there's a twist oh yeah i mean i just knew there needed to be suspense as far as like make leading you one way yeah. and then turning it in another so to me if i'm leading you one way we're like oh guys guess what i saw i saw a horrible thing <laughs> this guy can you believe this guy he's so rude and then yeah. it's, just, it's like oh i'm just playing <laughs> what about this what if it's nice he's a nice guy <laughs> yeah i mean it i mean i i will uh it's a masterful joke in many ways. Thank I, you. I, I don't. I don't disagree, <laughs> but I also can't say that. <laughs> I know. So I was like, I might as well put it up with that. I think because there's a, ver- a version of performance joke where there's really only one or two laugh lines where it's just like either way, Linda could do better is could be the joke, right? Mm-hmm. You could just say it so fast, and then people would get all of it. But like the way you do it, that guy hates Linda gets a joke, or. Mm-hmm. And then the biggest left is because you're waiting for people to kind of figure out the joke themselves. But then so the biggest shaft comes, he needs to remind himself. And by that point, they're there's on. like an applause break. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because they're on board with me. And sometimes I, when I originally was doing that joke, I would skip the part where I explain it out because I'm yeah. like, oh, they get it. They know. Yeah. But the fact that. I when I would explain it out and they they could be like I am right yeah. it kind of elicits this whole reaction of it's funny I was in on the joke with you yeah. you know and those are the, when people are kind of the happiest when they're not the butt of the jokes they're yeah. they're in and figuring out the thing with me and they're excited to be a part of it and they're like oh I was right you know it's fun as a performer what is it like to stand there. And be like, I need to wait for, like, because really, like, especially when you say he needs to remind himself, it gets like this big break. What's it like to sit in that pause? What do you try to feel out to Mm -hmm. know when you should finish talking? Um, I mean, if it's on a TV set, it's like amazing. Because to me, it's like they're like an animal and I have a little trap. And (laughs) they're like walking towards my trap and I see them and I like, I know if I just stay very, very quiet and don't move. I'm about to catch them and get dinner. And yeah. so it's like that feeling. I don't know what that feeling means, if it's like hunting or <laughs> what it is, but if it's like a Cheshire cat where I'm just like, I got you. <laughs> and that's my favorite, especially once I've done it a ton of times. I'm yeah. like, oh, I know, I know where I'm going. You said you mentioned this, you, you wrote this joke one or two years into doing stand up. And then eventually, by the time I heard it, I think you're eight or nine years into stand up, maybe even 10. So, Everything that I've, all the, all the rest of your material that I heard hypothetically came after. Did you learn something from this joke, do you feel? 
Yeah, I mean, I just learned a lot about my joke writing style. I think this is like this joke and the joke I have about Oregon and blackberries and (laughs) stuff were the beginning of me just writing jokes about my life and not trying to be like, I feel like when I first started and I don't, I think it's similar for some comedians. I I won't speak for them, but it's just like, let me write an abortion joke. Let me write this type of joke, you know, that type of joke. Uh, And uh, that was the beginning of me just observing something, make it making me laugh, yeah. and then me trying to expand on it. I mean, it's interesting that you you don't hear about the evolution of being a stand-up from the perspective of what you're like off stage. Like, I think when people think like, oh, you get on stage and you're more comfortable and you might be more comfortable to talk longer or build upon things. But you're more like, oh, after I did it well enough, I was able to sort of take my comedy brain to be a thing that I apply to real life where it's yeah. like I saw a thing and that is like oh there's a thing there it's not just a weird thing that my life exists yeah I think to be a really really great comedian at least comedians that I, I look up to you have to match your on stage and off stage they can't really be that different you have to have that same mind in both regards like the things that I would say on stages are the things I say off stage yeah. and so it just becomes this perpetual motion of just like me trying to always be happy and funny and having a good time and that's not always the case (laughs) it's not the easiest thing to do but it's a good pursuit i think and it's a fun way to try to live your life and it it keeps me mentally stimulated and makes me inspired to write more jokes the more i'm like oh i just like if something crappy happens to me i'm like oh that sucked but i'm like oh that sucked i should talk about yeah, that yeah. you know or oh i'm embarrassed about that i need to talk about it because maybe something it happened yeah. to somebody else you know? yeah it's it's a, a thing that from talking to comedians there's like you def- i mean it's, the closest is comparison is like a spider sense where it's like a spidey sense where it's like i'm feeling a sh- feeling that is the feeling that gets me to the point where i can maybe write a joke about it yeah and it's just honing that sense yeah it's usually just embarrassed <laughs> usually usually i'm like oh man i'm so oh so embarrassed by that and i'm like oh, okay i better write a joke yeah about that. i wanted to ask you about influences and not using them and using them in so much it's you know i've i've heard you, you talk about you know liking tig Notaro and liking mm-hmm. todd barry like the famously slow comedians mm-hmm. were were you like oh, i'm gonna try this out like kind of you know you talk like this so it's, and mm-hmm. they also talk like that but um what do you think you got out of them um as seeing them as comedians that do talk um i just got the ability to accept myself mm-hmm. um because i didn't see when i was starting it was just like oh i don't see other comedians like me i don't see and when you're especially when you're hosting and miking and doing things like that it's a lot of like oh i better get this show over i better be like oh who's birthdays we got birthdays <laughs> who's drinking tonight yeah, yeah. you know and i'm like i don't i don't care i'm allergic to alcohol i don't <laughs> drink and i don't care about you drinking at all and so it's like a lot of lying yeah and then um i worked with the Sklar brothers and they were which is i think is a note they've given to many comedians so it's not just to me but it's just, he, they were just like don't be afraid if your first joke bombs just let it bomb move to your next joke he's like you're doing all this stuff because you're afraid to let them get to know you yeah and, you know so it's like just let them get to know you and move on yeah and that was great advice and then i saw tig at bumbershoot and she was just 
pushing her little stool around when she was doing that bit and uh being in the crowd was very loud and very like talking over most of the other comedians and she just kept getting quieter and quieter and quieter until they had to listen to her and that was a point i was like oh i can be me i can be quiet and still be powerful yeah and that was just something i had to uh, except before it was just like, oh, if I'm going to be powerful, I have to be like, bah, be loud, be in your face, mm-hmm. be energetic. And I was just like, oh, I can just be my weird little self <laughs> and I'll be fine. And, and that's what I, I mean, I don't really, you know, take jokes or style notes or anything yeah. from them, but just acceptance to be myself, really. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it, ultimately what audience to react to is comfort and, mm-hmm. and you can be comfortable being loud if you are loud, but if you're not, ultimately they more would respond if it feels like this is who you were a minute before you got they like uh, authenticity and if you are who you are people and you like who you are especially people tend to gravitate towards it so it doesn't matter if you're like quiet like mitch hedberg or if you're energetic like kevin hart or if you're somewhere in between as long as that's truly who you are i mean i think that's the journey of comedy in general is just really being my best self like i'm i can look around all over the place and find comedians that write better jokes and who are better storytellers or better on stage performers but no one can beat my overall package of being myself yeah and so as long as i try to continue to be my best self and push myself and go to yoga and meditation and whatever i need uh, then hopefully we'll keep getting better uh, we'll be right back with more Ron Punches after this, <laughs> after this word from our sponsor. <laughs> uh, we are back with Ron Funches, uh, who believes the podcast needs a roar sound effect. Yeah, and not just a laughing a sound roar. effect. You gotta have a roar to let people know it's it's time for a break <laughs> yes or it's over uh we'll keep your we'll keep it as your roar every time will be you. the ron funches roar <laughs> um so i wanted it i thought it might be a good way of putting this question as, as a wrestling fan as you are uh do you feel like the sort of giggle your giggle is like your finishing move of a joke <laughs> um it's helpful <laughs> you know as long as it's never phony i think that's the thing is i've always been aware of like if I am laughing at a joke, I better really actually be caught up in the moment. I can't use... I've been tempted before to be like, oh, that joke didn't work. I better just giggle my way out of it. Uh, <laughs> but it just reads as phony, and I never want people to use it as a crutch, because I never want to have to stop giggling, because yeah. I like it, and that's who I am, and I don't want people to be like, oh, he's just... That's his shtick. He just goes up and tells mediocre jokes <laughs> and giggles after him. So it's just... But people like that I'm having a good time. They Apparently, they like my laugh. And so um, I just, why would I not use a tool that I have as long as it comes up naturally? I mean, like, at this point, I think, like, comedians laughing on stage is an accepted thing. Mm -hmm. But I feel like probably when you're starting, there might have been some stigma towards. Yeah, laughing at your own jokes, thinking you're thinking you're so funny. Why, Why are you laughing at your own jokes? You're supposed to let the audience tell you to be funny, but... I took a lot of lessons from from Chris D'Elia when I was working with him on Undateable. And it mostly was about confidence and about enjoying yourself. And whenever I saw him, 
I was like, oh, his jokes are no better than mine. Like, he's, you know, mine are better. <laughs> In your face. <laughs> um, and then, but I was like, what I do enjoy more about his act than I enjoyed about mine at the time was that it looked like he was having fun every moment of the time, that he was loving his act every second of the time. And I couldn't say that with mine, especially like in that first hour it seemed like a lot of and if you look at my life that's just what was going on there's a lot of transition of me getting divorced and thinking a lot of me being like oh do you like me like are you do you accept me and now it's kind of like if you see my hour now it's like i don't care (laughs) like i'm having fun i'm having a good time and i'm enjoying my life and i feel like i'm a better performer and that i'm just more I and even if I'm not a better performer, I enjoy myself more yeah. that I'm more confident and enjoying life more and, and believe because they used to get up on stage and every time was like a bank robbery where I was like, ah oh, fuck, I hope we get out of this one alive. And even though every other time had proven to me that I had done a good job and it was fun, but every time still I was like, Oh well, they might hate me this time. It might be a whole different group than this time to decide they hate me. And I was like, Well, if that happens, that happens. And but I need to go up there and at least be like, if no one had fun, I did. Yeah. And then I got paid. So I had double fun. So I do I, think a, a thank lo- you for that lesson, Chris. <laughs> I do think a lot of creative people have to get over the fact of like if you do something successful a hundred times, it probably means you're good enough at it that you could your goal should be to enjoy the thing that you're yeah. doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hard, but I think it just takes experience and it takes for me a I, I I kind of put it to like for a while I was like felt like I was in this sandbox and then I look up and I'm like oh there's a whole playground and then I look around the playground I'm like oh I'm in an amusement park and then I was like oh I'm supposed to be running the roller coaster. <laughs> I'm not supposed to be riding it and supposed to be like having fun. I'm supposed to be the one in charge of this whole thing, making sure everyone else has fun. And and once I started doing that, I was like, it became easy, a little bit easier to do comedy and more controlling because it was less like that I was on the ride yeah. with them. Be like, oh, I don't know how this is going to turn out. And more like, hey, guys, I got you. I'm running the lever. I got this. Put your seatbelts on. And then I'll pull this crank. Yeah, so. it's you enjoy your job and you want them to enjoy themselves. Exactly. It's almost like a hack stereotype that's, that of comedy fans who are like, oh, you must be high all the time to think of those <laughs> ideas. But you are a person who admits to us. Uh, to getting high i don't admit to it i openly publicize you publicize you talk on your act um i don't know if you write when it uh do you or if you perform it but i I more want to know kind of uh how do you feel about the perception that you are like you're a high person i mean i don't mind it people can do it say what they want it doesn't really affect me one way or the other other than the fact that it allows me to sometimes be high in socially unacceptable places to be high because people are like that's what he does <laughs> and i'm like well thank you for allowing me uh but for me it's just part of what i like doing i don't drink i don't uh, gamble i like smoking pot and i enjoy it and, I, and so i never was like why should i hide part of it and if i it does help me write some fun little jokes and then sometimes i have to edit them sober i have to act usually sober but other than that i'm just having a good time and that's one of the main things i like about leaving the country and going to other places like amsterdam because you don't people are like oh of course you love amsterdam there's pot everywhere and blah 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 a lot of white girls and i'm like yes i love both those things (laughs) but what i love the most is that this 
taking away the stigma of like uh, just to say like oh if i was high and i uh like knock something over here they're like oh yeah you dumb stoner you, you were stoned off your ass of course you did if i'm in amsterdam it's just like oh you made a mistake you know yeah. everyone makes mistakes and it's just that taking away that taboo that i really like into because i'm like man there's pothead doctors lawyers there's everything to be to even have to say this out of my mouth is ridiculous to me it's like yeah i want to smoke pot you who gives a shit so you write the joke and a few years later you perform it on conan and then Ludacris shares a meme of it on facebook mm-hmm. what did that mean to you it meant a whole lot to me <laughs> it ended up me later writing the joke about Ludacris. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> But at the time, it just really, it kind of expanded my worldview, which still happens because, like, I'll tweet things. Like, I did this thing for Amazon, and then I tweeted it like, hey, check this out. I did it for the check. And they got real mad. Oh, Amazon, they got mad? Yeah, they got super mad. And and I was like, oh, what? I just, why can't I? I thought I should just tweet out things like I always do. And my manager has to remind me that the more things I do, the more people take what i say seriously and so i have to be i try hard to fight against that because i feel like i don't want anything that stops my progress of me being myself and me writing what i write but also i do understand like did i need to send a tweet out like that i was just want i was sensitive that people would think i was a sellout so i was like throw this out and i could have just never even tweeted anything yeah i think that's also the truth always you never have to tweet everything yeah um what did it specifically mean that like a a rapper responded to a joke was it didn't mean anything different than it was a, a rapper yeah it meant that people were paying attention to my jokes even though i'm pretty sure Ludacris didn't know who i was he just thought it was a fun joke it just meant that the people that i looked up to and and the things that i enjoy were starting to enjoy me and bringing me closer to the people that i always liked and uh it's just awesome it just meant awesome things i'm happy if a grandma likes my joke or if Ludacris likes my joke but Ludacris got more twitter followers (laughs) so it's definitely more helpful to bring up wrestling again you know as you know each wrestler has a character of some sort even if they're mm-hmm. using their name there's a sort of worldview that they continue to return to as do comedians in some way mm-hmm. where does this joke relate to sort of you figuring out who you are as a sort of persona that is on stage yeah i mean it just relates to my uh ooh, i guess i have a name for it too because it's the name of my company uh merriment marauder um my favorite rap group of all time is Tropical Called Quest. My favorite album is Midnight Marauder. And there's a sketch on Midnight Marauder where they explain the title of Midnight Marauder, which is like to maraud is to loot. In this case, we, we loot for ears at night. It's when people listen to music at night. And so my thing was like, oh, I loot for cheers. I loot for joy. I, my, it's my job to mine the shitty aspects of life, the negative aspects, the the traumas the things that we all go through in the will of life and to find the joy and the merriment in that and i think in this joke is a prime indication of that of taking something that looks negative on its surface and trying to find a positive spin on it and i feel like i've gotten critiques on that where people are like you know you write to all your jokes are fun and nice and you don't talk about things you hate and i'm just like why would i talk about things i hate why would i give power to the things that i hate you know i want to give power to the things that i love and that i enjoy and so that's kind of 
shaped my worldview in the way that I do comedy. If you want to find someone that, like, there's Lewis Black, there's, like, Colin Quinn. There's a lot of people you can go talk to who, who will complain for you. And they do a great job, and they do way better than I would. Yeah. Like, this is just who I am. I've always been this peaceful person. I've always been a positive person. And it's just... I think it's, again. I grew up in a lot uh, a house. With, I grew up south side of Chicago, very dangerous. I grew up in a home where my mom had an abusive boyfriend. So it's kind of like my world perspective just was like we gotta find joy yeah. wherever we can find it. And so that's pretty much how I write. That's interesting. I mean, I think that critique uh, is incorrect in so much as though you are not an anger comedian, you are not. I guess not confrontational and so much as like your act and this joke and, and especially live jokes are subverting things, right? Like you're taking neck tattoos hypothetically and then presenting them in, in a different way. And I was going to ask you sort of, because it's a theme that it seems you try to a lot, which is um, kind of what is your history with kind of masculinity mm-hmm. and toughness, mm-hmm. both kind of in your life, which you touch on, but also kind of on stage where you realize there's sort of and that's an area you can kind of go to a lot yeah i mean a lot yeah that's i do play with that a lot because that's just how i grew up with i grew up in a house full of, of women i was raised by my mom and my sister and my aunt and she had a daughter I, there wasn't another boy until i was like 10 and he was one so it wasn't really <laughs> stuff for us to do so um i had always and then my mom had again an abusive boyfriend who very masculine, very thing. So I always saw these things as kind of negative traits, very dominant traits, very um, oppressive traits. And I th- always found real strength in the ability to, and like my mom and stuff, the ability to survive things and not let them change your worldview, to have traumas happen to you and still be positive. To me, that was always true strength to be able to, um, be like, yeah, that was shitty, but I'm still going to open my heart and I'm going to find someone new, even though that person cheated on me or whatever, you know, that is strength, you know? And so that's kind of what I wanted to play with in my comedy about like what is really like considered masculine, what what should basically like what 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 type of man I want my son to be and what type of man I want to be and I I don't want to be one that's like dominating and 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 I want to be a guy who listens who protects people who you know looks out for people who need to be looked out for and also protects themselves you know I mean a a way you do that in a really interesting way is uh you play with contrast Mm -hmm. you you know it's and basic way you'll present kind of harsh things sweetly and sweet mm-hmm. things kind of harshly mm-hmm. um and you do that a lot with sort of your the way you present yourself on stage can you talk about sort of like what you kind of get out of th- that sort of push and pull of contrasting different things yeah it started with just being aware of what how i viewed myself compared to what, how other people viewed me and some of those things have changed recently and i have to adjust especially i mean i lost like 140 pounds so like to at first i was like oh i'm a sw- i hear my voice i know my tones and i'm like i'm a sweet little boy and then i realized like oh you're at the time you're like a 320 pound black dude you look <laughs> scary to some people yeah and so i had to learn how to play with both of those things yeah. and play with people's perspectives of me and what they saw up close which was a lot of the jokes about like Jap- japanese print laughing like a japanese princess and things like that and i remember i had a mentor in comedy who was just like 
you write your jokes your joke women like your jokes you write towards the women dudes will follow it doesn't why would you write towards dudes they're dumb yeah. <laughs> and so i end up like a lot of women like my act and and, and which i love because usually they're smarter <laughs> and and then i'm like oh it's fun because then i realized the rarity of being a man who went up there and was like i love british bake-off i love rupaul's drag race i love all these things and women being like we don't even really get that many women comedians who talk <laughs> about the things that i like like that too yeah. you know and so it just became this thing where and i know not all women like those things but it's like uh, a lot of uh things that i liked end up being like girls were like man i like your style and then my girlfriend's also like you're also cute and i'm yeah. like thank you um you mentioned how uh you've lost 140 pounds you spent you know 10 years as a, as a heavier comedian you know how did you expect this might you know as you were doing it how did you expect it was going to affect your act and have you you know what have you noticed in terms of have you noticed anything in terms of how audiences react to you um nothing really reaction changes as far i mean except for you know more people listen to you a little bit more and, and more girls are attracted to you um and it's just being aware of like some of the shitty things that you think about human psyche is just true or just like if i'm more attract if i'm more physically appealing people are more likely to listen to me and that's not why i lost the way i don't need it for health um but it's definitely been a side effect of it but as far as my act i never really talked about weight and mm-hmm. stuff so i didn't really need to change that aspect but i did need to change some of the like oh you look at me like a giant and i was like oh no they don't and they're like <laughs> yeah. you're handsome and cute <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like now your your career as a handsome genre of comedian yeah which i love breaking <laughs> into <laughs> so were you at all fearful like you're like oh maybe like no like, because it was better for me yeah and all and that's all i care about i don't if i ever felt trapped into doing something because i was worried that a crowd wouldn't like it then i've lost my touch and i lost my path because i've never even i've never written a a joke going i think the crowd will like this i write a joke thinking i will like this all right that uh this is what i want to talk about i don't know who the quote is from but it's like you know a great artist doesn't give you what you want they get you what you didn't know you wanted you know and that's what i always try to do it's like you didn't even know that this was what you needed but this is what you needed i mean also you as you said, you, did, you didn't write about it and you wrote like jokes like you're really like I think their writing is there. So it doesn't it ultimately doesn't yeah. really affect it. I mean, all it really affected was it gave me more energy so I could do more two shows a night without getting really tired. And and then again, I'm just just healthy and excited and happy and having sex more. <laughs> <laughs> so that sound means. <laughs> And that other sound means it's time for the uh, the final segment. It's called the the laughing round. So okay. it's like a lightning round, but because it's comedy, it's a laugh laughing well, round. I got it because you got to like brand things. Yeah, I, I know. Um, <laughs> so lightning round rules apply. Um, you talk about your son a lot in your act. Uh, kids sometimes make up jokes that sort of lack an internal logic, and mm-hmm. it almost is better that way. Mm-hmm. Do you remember any of your son's jokes? Most of my son's jokes are very racist in <laughs> uh, their impressions of him doing different things. Uh, a lot of them are Chinese men. He, my son's like a comic from the 80s, basically. <laughs> he does very, very hacky jokes about how he doesn't want to go to Japan <laughs> because too many chingy chongs. And I was like, dude, you can't say that. But you can't tell 
still a kid with autism not to say things. They love saying stuff, but he's he's learning to be less racist towards Asians and dogs. He's racist to dogs as well. Uh, but he's hilarious. He is so funny. He always has been because he just cuts through whatever. Just like kids. And again, with the autism, he's just is like, I just straight up say whatever. Yeah. And I love it. He gives me a lot of uh, reminder to cut my filter. Is there a joke that you wrote while high that you later were like, this really makes no sense? <laughs> yeah, there's several. <laughs> there's several. I don't remember them because they did not make the cut. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of 2 a.m. notebooks of being like, what does Cheetos <laughs> change? <laughs> like, what does that even mean? I feel like it was brilliant at the time. But I miss that a lot because now I'm too busy working and being a single dad and stuff that I don't get to do as many 2 a.m high in my bed just writing sessions i miss them um have you ever had a heckler that was ultimately useful yeah definitely definitely i've had hecklers that uh just kind of let me sharpen up my material because they were right about (laughs) things not being that funny or i've had not even really hecklers but i've had i had one friend uh in seattle who and i was doing these bits and it was just like i was newer and so i had some bits that were a little hacky and stuff and then she saw me doing it one year and she didn't say nothing i came back to another year had more material but still closed on this bit and she was just like she's like you're really good at comedy it's stand-up she's like you don't need to do those hacky bits and i was just like ah! and then i but i was like she's right she's absolutely right and she's only said and i knew and it was a friend so i knew she wasn't trying to hurt me she was just like you need to grow and move from this bit do you know uh can you say the general area of the hackiness yeah it was like a game show that i hosted that very sexual (laughs) got a lot of things with balls and whatnot what do you think what The Rock is cooking smells like? Probably smells like sandalwood, um, definitely sweat, uh, money, a little HGH, and confidence. <laughs> um, if you can steal any joke and no one would ever find out or get mad at it and you wouldn't feel about it, mm-hmm. so what joke would it be? Um, Mitch Hedberg's do frame party of five. I probably search party of five. Yeah. That's probably my, one of my favorite. Like, that's just a silly, funny joke. Our escalator can only become stairs. Yeah. Most of Mitch Hedberg's material I was stealing as my own, and people be like, yeah, that still makes sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, you should do. And now I was like, you should steal this Mitch Hedberg joke, which is my favorite, which is uh, I once saw a wino eating a grape. And I said, man, you have to wait. (laughs) (laughs) You'd have to change that man because that man is a Mitch Hedberg. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a favorite joke joke, like a street joke? Mm, Not that I can think of. No street joke that I can think of. I'll always like little Laffy Taffy jokes, but nothing that comes off of the head. I've never been like... You want not like that type of a joke writer. Yeah. I've never been like, ooh, like that's great formula. Even though I can recognize a great formula, yeah. uh, but I've always been like, oh, I kind of say weird things and it works out as a joke. Do you have uh, a joke that never works or eventually stop working so you stop doing it, but you still believe it's funny and go to grade? believing it's funny yeah i had this joke about um stabbing babies in the soft spot of their head and i get that that's probably not a fun 
<laughs> area to d- dive into but it was a lot about black history and slaves that did that to their uh, master's babies and like white audiences were not into it <laughs> and, I, and I got and black audiences also were not into it <laughs> I was really the only one into it <laughs> Uh, that's great. That's it. It's a pleasure. That's it for another episode of Good One. Follow Ron on Twitter at Ron Funches and Instagram at Ron Funch. You can listen to The Funches of Us and his new album Giggle Fit wherever you stream music. Good One is produced by me and Mike Comte. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write our view and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. And hey, if you know anyone who might like the podcast, maybe tell them what the heck. You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jesse David Fox. You can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Have a good one. That was a headgum podcast.